What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... <coughs> I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Welcome to the Narrators Podcast. I'm Robert Rutherford. And I'm Andrew Orvidal. This podcast collects stories that were told at the Narrators, a monthly storytelling event that features people telling true stories based on a theme. The show takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at the Buntport Theater in Denver, Colorado. These stories were recorded live on May 21st. The theme of the evening was The Move. This first storyteller is a, uh, is a funny comedian, uh, around town and a great storyteller. Please welcome Jared Yui. Thank you for coming out. I have three kids, so if I see anyone out after 5 p.m., I am in awe of them. So thank you for taking whatever steps you took to get out of the house. Uh, my story is about the move from a place of stability to another place that I'll refer to as, oh shit. <laughs> and this stability of which I speak is something you're probably, most of you are familiar with, at least I hope, and that is mom. Moms are people, they're places, they're things. They are the consummate omnipresence, which is why they can be a ridiculous pain in the ass. I mean, but for the most part, they are aurora borealises of benevolence and protection. And that was mine. That was my mom. And she had this trick, and I think a lot of moms are good at this, uh, and if you're, maybe you're a new mom, I think you're, just, you're starting to learn this. You'll become a Jedi master of making bad things good, and making good things even better. It's one hell of a way to get by like, on a budget. You know, like, hey, kids, this isn't Disneyland, but this is, the Super 8 has, a, has free soap. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, like, who, got, who, got, who got the shower... Uh, mask or whatever that thing you put on your head. I forgot. What is that thing called? The bonnet? Shower cap. Oh my God. Yes. Monosyllabic words escape me. If my mom were here now, she'd be like, that was a really good job with that shower thing. You did great. I know nouns are difficult. And that, I, let me paint for you first just how endearing this woman was. She watched me play high school sports, basketball in particular, for four years and still encouraged me. And so I will briefly paint a picture of what this woman saw. I was a husky boy, and we, I grew up in Walden, Colorado. Not a lot of people go to Walden on purpose. So there's not like a flow of money. There was not new uniforms. And let me just say, I think people in the 50s were a lot smaller. Because I was out there, kind of looked like I was wearing body paint, I had like tufts of pubescence just spurting. And, oh, this is great, I had eczema. So I had to wear this kind of luminescence layer of oils and lotions and different lubricants. It was like I'd been sent from the future to start over again. You know, let this one evolve and then send it back. So my mom saw that 
and she still came to games. And the lowest point of any of my athletic endeavors came in encampment, Wyoming, a bitter rival for us. We didn't have much else to do there, so basketball was very exciting. It was a warm place, so we could all gather. And my mom drove in a car that was given to her, because we were just poor country folk, on icy roads through Wyoming. And if you drive through Wyoming to anywhere, it better be good. That's why Yellowstone kicks ass. Like, it knows. You know, people are driving through Wyoming. We better going to blow some volcano stuff. There's going to be a winged bison. There's going to be some awesome things that will happen. So my mom drives to encampment, and I was supposed to wear glasses, uh, but I was, I'd already kind of lost the lotto as far as athletic attractiveness went, so I was like, I'm not going to do that. So it was a bad idea because, especially in gyms with the fluorescent lighting, I couldn't see all that well. And we got to encampment, and they're the tigers. And they had a tiger painted on their floor, and I thought it was someone's winter coat. So... Common sense would have someone moving the coat. But I didn't want to be the guy who was too wimpy that, to play with a coat on the floor. So I was like, that's okay. I'm, I'm going to just show how and, 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 and just, just how gifted I am. And so I would leap over this coat <laughs> every time I run up and down the floor. Now, there was some pain. You know when you get those, that stupid thing you do, seizure, you think about it? I still get that. Because I realized, like, in the third quarter when Donnie Burbeau asked me in timeout, I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> and I was like, what, you don't like my Barishnikovs over midcourt? And he explained that to me. But my mom said to me, Jared, I never knew how good of a jumper you are. <laughs> So that's my mom's magic. Now, so cut to, you cut to 12 years later, and my mom's living with my wife and I, and she had been dealing with brain tumors for five years. And she'd already outlived anybody's expectations. I mean, surgeons would tell her it's too late, sorry, and she would just turn it around. It was like a just Jedi mind trick them into believing that their 12 years of education were wrong. And so she, she's living with us, and and everybody's concerned, but she would comfort them. She would, uh, for example, uh, in, she had this, after her seventh brain surgery, and people were a little concerned, she came up with a mantra, no more in 04. And people bought it, and were chanting, no more in 04. Before her ninth craniotomy, she came up with another mantra, I'm gonna be alive through 05. And everybody believed it. And that was about when she went blind. And she was so positive that she believed she could see. And if you're like looking for a definition of her optimism in the near future, think of someone who has aggressive tumors that have crushed the circulation and optic flow to the ocular glands, cannot see, and believe she can. She still did. And so she created this whole world in her head. It became like a medical enigma. People could not explain what was happening. We have a, my wife and I have a tiny little house in Inglewood. She turned it into a mansion. And she constantly complained, would you stop remodeling? This is ridiculous. I can't get around. She had, there was kids all over the house. There was kids. I had no kids, but she'd been a teacher. So there were kids in her room. There were kids in the kitchen behind the refrigerator in the bathtub, which was a little unsettling for a guy who's sensitive or in scary movies. But, and we worked with it. She saw TVs all over the house. There was a TV on the ceiling in the kitchen. We didn't even have cable. So we were like, this is amazing. 
she had a chef. She conjured a chef. His name was Quintanamos. And he would, serious. My eldest son, by the way, his name is Quinn. But, uh, and he would cook for her. At three in the morning, she'd call to me to the bedroom. And she'd like, Quintanamos made a hickory burger and some brownies. And I would watch her at first kind of disappointed and skeptical. But she was a mom. And so soon enough, I'd be sharing her fries. It's fantastic. She'd just be really eating imaginary food. So we worked with this and things were pretty good, although some negative visions cropped up. Uh, she complained that there was a flaming pit between her bedroom and the bathroom. Uh, but using her trick, she turned it into a positive by telling me it's okay, because I realized in your remodeling, you've turned my toilet into an earthen pot. Okay. And she complained that there was rusty bicycles all over the house. Do I look like I ride a lot of bikes? And this, we, we were able to work with this because she was positive, we were positive, until she turned us into the Colorado Center for the Blind. And this was kind of my fault because I was like, Mom, you know, I don't know what I'm doing and you are blind but not. Uh, can, we need to get some help. So we had these people over. Two people came. One was like this executive-looking lady in a pantsuit and another is this, was this huge guy in overalls. And I'll refer to him, I'll just blow up some political correctness here. I refer to him as double blind because... He'd been blind, born blind, regained his vision through the magic of science, and then, as a healthy young man, lost his vision in a shop accident. So this guy was like an ignorance-seeking torpedo looking for someone just like me who might have turned his mother toilet into an earthen pot. And he showed up at my house, very large, and he came in, and I sat them down and there was handshakes and hugs and I wrote them a check and we got some tools, the cane, a check writing device, a phone dialing mechanism, and things seemed pretty positive. And they were on their way out and the screen door was about to close and I was feeling warm and cuddly and we were gonna help this woman and, and then my mom perked up and said, oh, did he mention the flaming pit between the bedroom and the bathroom? And this guy, double blind, whipped around and without any assistance emerged into the middle of my living room. And I was doing this to the sighted lady like this. And he heard me, he felt me. And he said, shut up, let Anne speak. <laughs> and she did. She told him about the rusty bicycle. She told him about TVs all over the house. And she told him about the flaming pit that kept her from getting to the toilet that I had turned into an earthen pot. And this guy finally was on the precipice of his destiny to destroy some arrogant kid like me. And somehow he made it to the hallway, my mom hanging onto his belt, me hanging onto my mom while gesturing to the blind, the sighted lady that this is not true. And we went down the hallway and he felt the doors because actually he, my mom told him that I bricked off her bedroom and, and, he, and he felt the floor. And, and then and in a very awkward moment, I guided this giant man's hands around the porcelain of our toilet. <laughs> it's like the antithesis of, antithesis of that scene from Ghost, you know, <laughs> working together just... And, and everybody was calmed to a degree. My mom still refuted everything I said. And, and this time though, when they left, there were handshakes and smiles, but you know that kind of Southern politeness where someone just wants to be nice to you? And they had kind of a silent surrender as they walked out of our house, essentially saying, there's nothing we can do. And so, that's where a move took place. And later that night, when my mom had a hickory burger with Quintanamos, 
I looked out the window at this tree my wife and I had planted, and it was, had grown. It was a success, which is a rare for us in planting things, and it was firm and solid and stable. And we seemed to be whirling off into the unknown without any control over our destiny. And I said to myself, oh, shit. Thank you. My name is Jared. Jared. That was Jared Yui. This next storyteller, uh, one of our absolute favorites. She's a playwright. She has a play coming up in August at Workspace and a Christmas play at The Edge. Uh, she's great. Please welcome Ellen K. Graham. When people ask me how I ended up moving back to Denver, I tell them it was because my grandmother got sick. I graduated from college in June and left almost immediately for Europe. This trip hewed to some of the stereotypes, but we steered clear of hostels, instead of staying in dismal hotels, typically walk-ups with a shared bath on each floor. In Lille, I had to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and couldn't get the door to our room open with the misshapen skeleton key, so I had no choice but to pee outside on the balcony. As a matter of principle, we avoided some big tourist attractions, such as Michelangelo's David and the entire city of Rome, electing instead to hang out in the birthplace of St. Francis, lying drunkenly beneath the cypress trees, listening to German pilgrims sing hymns. St. Francis was, was my grandmother's favorite, and I sent her a postcard bearing his prayer. I knew something was up when I called my mother from a phone booth in a stone-cold valley in Norway. Because Norway was punitively expensive, we had been camping, and there were no fires in Norwegian campgrounds because there was no firewood, because apparently there were no trees in Norway. So I was sick, standing at a payphone in a valley choked with icy mist, having had nothing to eat but dairy products for the preceding week. And I called my mother, feeling very sorry for myself, missing the Colorado summer sun, corn on the cob, all that. I was so happy to hear her voice, I cried a little. After telling her the sad story of my unfortunate deployment to God's country, I asked, how's everything going there? She said, everything's fine. A note, my mother is not an effusive person. She is not prone to scenes. She has the general demeanor of a pit boss. Good behavior will get you a nod like this. Bad behavior, a shake like this. Maybe a point like this. It required years of study to interpret the subtleties of my mother's semiotics, but I knew right away from the tone of her, everything's fine, it's firmness, it's excessive good cheer, that something was wrong at home. I pressed her. She held firm. We hung up. When I came home, my grandmother was dying of a brain tumor, no less. I remembered suddenly that three months earlier, she had misspelled the word congratulations on my graduation card. This was totally out of character, and I had felt a weird chill when I read the card, a premonition before I shoved it back into the envelope. There was no question of me going anywhere, working, doing anything other than being my mother's right hand as we navigated appointments, hospitals, hospice. It was a complete, oddly engrossing experience. My mind had no space for anything else. The decline was mercifully rapid. Within a month of my return home, my grandmother was dead. She died in the night. We drove to the hospice. I went into her room where she lay on the bed, legs straight out, the ramker legs we called them, thin with ropey calf muscles and delicate ankles. There was a patch of skin showing between her sock and her pant leg, and I put my hand there. She was stone cold, cold as any stone, and I pulled my hand away. 
It wasn't until after the funeral, after all the relatives had come and gone and the business of death transacted, that I realized I was here, back in Denver, in my parents' house. The great what now descended. The thing about returning to your hometown after years away is that you have to fight the past off at every turn. Look, there's the church where you took ballet lessons. Hey, that's where you got flashed. There's your journalism teacher, drunk in a Lodo bar. Worse, I had to elbow past all the ghosts of my former selves, the pixie-cutted kindergartner mistaken for a boy on the first day of school, the nine-year-old who could not, could not get her tennis serve over the net no matter what she did, the 15-year-old setting fire to a plastic American flag on the 4th of July and shrieking as it melted all over her hand. My college stuff was still in boxes. Easy enough to load them up and keep moving, right? My sister was always renting a U-Haul and driving somewhere, rural Montana, New York City. I could do the same. Of course, I didn't have a driver's license, but I could get one, right? My college friends are mostly still in Chicago. I could go there. I could get a job and live in an apartment. Maybe I could date a man taller than me. But not now. It was almost Christmas. Well, it was two months until Christmas. Might as well, might as well wait until the new year to move. My parents had been warily circling me, tolerating my joblessness, but I knew my time was running out, so I applied for a seasonal job at the Tattered Cover. They offered me a position, but I turned it down. $5 an hour? I made five times that amount as a test subject for the University of Chicago hospitals. <laughs> I applied for a job at Starbucks. On the third interview, they told me I would have to remove my nose piercing to work there. When I heard this, I actually told the interviewer something about how removing my nose piercing would be an unacceptable concession to the man. I actually said that. <laughs> I left the interview feeling free and fierce. Why not head to England, where theater companies would fight for the opportunity to produce my comedy about Welsh modernist novelist Olive Moore? <laughs> I started temping, 10 key for an oil and gas company, entering 12-digit numbers into spreadsheets eight hours a day. Receptionist for a law firm. On my first day, I transferred a call to one of the, to one of the attorneys. You have a call on line one. Who is it, she asked. I don't know, I answered, because how would I know? They pulled me from the phones and sent me to the task of sealing envelopes for the firm's Christmas cards. The envelopes were lined with foil, so you couldn't use a sponge to wet them, so I ran my tongue over the adhesive of hundreds of envelopes, day in and day out, until I was fired for losing a fax. The grinning, hateful receptionist set me up, but I was glad to be gone. Still free, still unencumbered, I could move to New York, and like my cousin David, become a personal assistant to a rich person. I could make ridiculous amounts of money picking up dry cleaning and arranging flowers, or maybe directing other lesser employees to pick up dry cleaning and arrange flowers. <laughs> On the side, I would meet downtown theater types. Once in Alphabet City, I had seen Willem Dafoe walking down the sidewalk. He wore a black muscle shirt and carried a plastic grocery bag. I gaped at him. He glowered at me. NYC, full of possibilities. <laughs> I finally signed a six-month lease for an apartment in Capitol Hill. Only six months, right? After that, I could join the Peace Corps and bring my text analysis skills to developing nations. I envied my friends who studied French and Spanish, much more useful. I had studied German. Weren't there still some former German colonies somewhere? Maybe in North Africa. I took driver's ed in the basement of the Sears in Cherry Creek. My classmates were either people with multiple DUI convictions there as a condition of probation, or women who had recently emigrated from, from countries where they were not allowed to drive. I got a perfect score in the permit test, but I had no car, so I couldn't practice driving, so I couldn't take the road test, so no license, so no U-Haul. The six-month lease expired. I signed a 12-month one. The nonprofit where I was temping offered me a salary job in the accounting department, which I accepted. I justified my choices by loudly declaring my desire to go somewhere else, to do something else. I didn't. 
The thing I don't understand is why the loss of someone who anchored me to this place didn't free me from it. It was the opposite. When I came back, everything was imbued with meaning, spirits of the dead and the living. Market Street Station, for example. Inhale that smell and I was a teenager again, waiting to catch the bus to visit my grandmother in Longmont for a few weeks in the summer, where I would defrost her refrigerator in the garage and polish the china cabinet with old English furniture polish. She paid me an absurd hourly rate for my services and made me stop every 15 minutes or so for a cold drink. We watched days of our lives and took bus excursions to Boulder. After she was gone, I loved that I could step into Market Street Station whenever I wanted to and just be transported. Why would I ever leave that behind? A few weeks ago, 19 years after she died, Market Street Station finally closed, and I grieve it, I really do. My grandmother was born on Staten Island and came of age in Prohibition-era Chicago. She went to speakeasies and dated a boxer named Kingfish Levinsky and saw men go crazy on bathtub gin. A few years into the Depression, she met a door-to-door refrigerator salesman. They fell in love, but he was a Jew and she was Catholic, so they decided to escape their families by moving west. There's a photo of, them on the, photo of them on their wedding day, young and glamorous in their sleek city clothes, standing in front of the Amarillo courthouse. They squint into the brutal sun. One generation back, their parents before them had fled the old country, fleeing rising anti-Semitism in France and sadistic English land laws in Ireland. One generation forward, my, their daughter, my mother, would flee rural Colorado for the big city, Denver, where I was born, and my son too. Maybe it's our destiny to create a new old country from which our descendants will eventually flee. Oh, Denver, you sweet, eager striver, you surly, regular, glaring at strangers, ugly, beautiful with your late, limb-cracking snows, your red-skied summer days when the ashes sift down, you gorgeous fucker. When did I stop looking over your shoulder? When did I finally look you in the eye and say, you, this, this is the place? That's Ellen K. Graham. The Narrator's Podcast is recorded and produced by Ron Doyle. The Narrator's Podcast is brought to you by these amazing sponsors. The great guys at Illegal Pete's and Greater Than Records, who in addition to providing rad burritos all over town, provide great local music and comedy. Check out the appropriately named Sexy Pizza at either of their locations in Capitol Hill or Old South Pearl, or on their website, sexypizzaonline.com. And finally, by the internet superheroes at Commerce Kitchen, who provide internet marketing solutions and search engine optimization for all your e-commerce needs. Check them out at commercekitchen.com. For more information about the narrators and to listen to past episodes, go to the narratorspodcast.com. Thanks for listening.